Good morning. Uh, I'm Rob Miller, one of the elders here at, uh, at Bethel, and it is my privilege to be with you this morning and also to be the last speaker of the summer before Ross returns next week from sabbatical. Uh, I just want to add one thing to what Johnny said about uh, Wednesday night. Uh, we have the Wednesday work going on here. There's another course that I and a couple of other folks are involved in teaching in the other building, uh, Bethel Theological Studies, where we're going through a curriculum on a series of uh, systematic theology. And this fall, we're teaching the doctrine of salvation, uh, why we need it and what Scripture has to say about it. So that may be of interest to some of you as well. All right. So this morning, we're going to look at Haggai. Now, Haggai is, uh, there are three prophets that wrote after the Israelites returned from their Babylonian exile. Haggai, the first one, uh, Zechariah, who wrote it at the same time, and then Malachi, who wrote about 100 years later. And these three make, the, make up the last three books of the Old Testament. Now, Haggai is a rather small book, and it's broken up into four sections. Uh, today, we're going to just look at the first two sections, which uh, uh, is going to comprise chapter 1 and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as we read this story, we're going to see that it's a story of focus. Uh, that is what we choose to make the center of our thought, our activity. Uh, let me give you an example. Now, I know none of you in this room would ever do this, but how many of you have been driving down the road and you see someone with one hand on the steering wheel and the other hand with their phone right here? All right, they clearly, their focus is not on what it should be. So in Haggai, we're going to see a story uh, of the Israelites. And we're going to first see that it's a story of focus lost, then focus regained, and then focus on the future. Uh, however, before we get started, we need to sort of set the historical scene, if you will. Recall that at around 597, King Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple, and then exiled the Israelites off to Babylon. Well, about 58 years later, King Cyrus, who was the founder of the first Persian Empire, he defeats the Babylonians. And in the first year of his reign, something really interesting happens. God stirred King Cyrus so that he made a proclamation. Now, for the historical narrative of this return, we go to the book of Ezra. And that's where we're going to go. Uh, he's going to tell us about the story of their return. And that's where we go to read this proclamation. So in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now Cyrus also returned to the Israelites some of the gold and some of the precious items that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. But the thing to notice here is that Cyrus didn't just let the folks return. He charged them to return with a specific purpose of rebuilding the temple. Now, certainly, they're going to have to build homes, and they're going to have to grow crops and raise animals 
and all those other things that they would need to live. However, their purpose was to rebuild the temple. That was to be their primary focus. So let me tell you a little story that will help us to understand the importance of keeping our focus. On the evening of December 29th, in, uh, December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was on a regularly scheduled flight from New York to Miami. On approach to the runway in Miami, the, the, the crew put the landing gear down, and the green light indicating that the nose landing gear was down and locked it did not come on. It did not illuminate. They told air traffic control that they needed to do a go-around and work the problem. So ATC instructed them to climb to 2,000 feet and go out west of Miami and hold there. The captain told the first officer, turn on the autopilot, and then the crew, the captain, the first officer, and the flight engineer all started working on the problem. Meanwhile, the aircraft started its ascent. The pilots did not notice the descent until it was too late, and the aircraft crashed into the Everglades swamp and killed 101 of the 177 people on board. So the question is, why did this plane, how does a very experienced and well-trained crew not catch this aircraft ascending? Well, sadly, the answer is tragically simple. The pilots lost their focus on their primary responsibility. No one was minding what the airplane was doing. To put it simple, no one was flying the plane. And it doesn't matter if the autopilot is on or not. One of the pilot's primary responsibilities must be on making sure that the plane's on course, at the right speed, and the right altitude. Now, there are other things that pilots must do while they're conducting a flight as well, such as navigating, talking air traffic control, and dealing with those occasions when things don't go right. <clears throat> but someone's focus must be on the plane, and the crew of Eastern 401 failed to do this. Once the autopilot was engaged, all three pilots focused on trying to determine, is that nose landing gear down and locked? And then, and for reasons that investigators were never able to determine, the altitude hold mode of the autopilot became disengaged and the aircraft started a gradual descent. But because no one was keeping an eye on the airplane, none of the pilots noticed until it was too late. So I'm sure you're asking, what does this have to do with the Israelites' return from exile? Well, as we look at more of their story, we're going to see the Israelites also lost their focus on their primary responsibility, which is to rebuild the temple. So they returned to Jerusalem. They erected an altar. They put that up there. They started building the foundation, but they would also have built homes, again, grown crops, raised animals, do all the things they needed to, to sustain their lives while they were rebuilding the temple. However, they ran into some resistance. Uh, there were some adversaries that did their best to stop the work. Uh, some of it was pagans who had moved into the area that had been vacated when the Israelites were taken off into uh, captivity. Some of them were Samaritans who wouldn't much care for the temple being built there at all. And uh, they eventually got King Artaxerxes to order a stop to the rebuilding and the work stayed suspended for 18 years. So meanwhile, the Israelites, they busied themselves with building up their homes, their lives, their businesses. 
And there's no indication that they tried to get that suspension lifted. They just quit worrying about it. In their minds, there were more important things to attend to. They had become, the Israelites had become so preoccupied with their own day-to-day lives that they paid no attention to their primary purpose, the task they were charged by King Cyrus to do, which is to rebuild the temple. And this is the situation we find when the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. So, starting in Haggai, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now notice here, God initially directs his, his words to the governor and the high priest, to the leadership. If we go back on Eastern 401, the captain was primarily responsible to see that someone fly the plane. He could have told the first officer, look, you fly the plane. You monitor things while, the first, while I and the flight engineer work the problem. And that's a pretty common protocol, but he did not do that. He allowed the entire crew to focus on the problem with the nose landing gear. Likewise, the leaders here could have ensured that the needs of the people to build places to live and to gain sustenance was balanced and keep them focused on their main purpose, which was to rebuild the temple. But they didn't do that. So the first problem we see here is a failure of leadership. Uh, And I'm sure that many of us have been in situations where we've seen a failure of leadership as resulted in a failure or degradation of the organization. And that's what we have here. Notice also, the Lord said, these people, not my people. So we're starting off with a rebuke here. He's setting the tone. that He doesn't like what's going on. So now in verses 3 and 4, the word of the Lord is going to be directed at the people. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So again, while the captain was ultimately responsible for assigning someone to fly the plane, that did not absolve the first officer and flight engineer. Either one of them could have stepped up and said, hey, wait, someone needs to be looking at this. They didn't do it. Likewise, again, the leaders should have... um, kept the Israelites focused. But in the absence of leadership, the people had a responsibility. They knew what they were there to do. And God, in very firm language, reminds them of this truth. And then we have this picture that God paints of these paneled houses. And it's something more than just a suitable place to live while we work on the temple. We're talking a home where the focus is on upscale. Really nice, all the comforts, something we would see in better homes and gardens. And clearly an indication that it's more important to them that they rebuild their homes than they rebuild the temple. So now that God has described the situation as he sees it, he is going to do a little reprimanding. And while we have the words that God had gave Haggai, what we don't have... Um, is the tone of voice that God might have used. So um, I did a career in the military, and I saw lost sergeants working with their troops. 
And the best ones, the most effective ones, had a tone of voice. Now, this tone of voice wasn't any louder than a normal voice, but it had an edge to it. And that edge was sharp enough that the troops got the message loud and clear. I call it a sergeant voice. My grandkids could tell you about my sergeant voice. But. So anyhow, God gave Haggai the words to say, and if I had to guess, I'd say he also gave him the tone of voice to say it. And I think the Israelites were about to get God's sergeant voice. In verse 5, now, now therefore, thus says Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now in the Hebrew, this word consider is very interesting because it's really two words. Now, the first word is the verb to place or to set. And the second word is mind or your will or your heart. And another way of saying this might be, look at where you've placed your heart and how it guides your ways. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus teaches this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Israelites' hearts were not in rebuilding the temple. Their hearts were in building their homes and their livelihoods, and their businesses, and their wealth. So in verse 6, God is going to give the Israelites a little reality check. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. It's as if God is saying, have you noticed while you're focused on yourselves that all your work has come to little? Has this not caused you to question where your heart's at? Did you not see this as a warning? Now, the pilots in Eastern 401 were also given a warning. So airliners have, this, have a unique tone that sounds when you stray off your assigned altitude by 400 feet. So when the aircraft started this gradual descent out of 2,000, when it passed 1,600 feet, that tone went off. You can hear it on the cockpit voice recording. But there is no indication that the crew even noticed it. God had also given the Israelites a warning in Leviticus chapter 26. Now, first in verses 3 through 5, he's going to tell them, these are the consequences of obeying me. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their, their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely." But later on in verse 14, he's going to warn them, warn them of the punishment for disobedience. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, 
so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And I won't read it here, but he goes, God goes at great length to describe to the Israelites what he will do. And trust me, it is not a pretty picture. However, the Israelites were still so focused on their own lives that they didn't notice this warning tone out of, out of Leviticus. Nothing was going as they planned. They weren't getting results they should have. Yet in all this, they never stopped to consider why this was happening. So now God is going to take a little more direct approach. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Again, he uses this term consider. Only this time, I think he's telling them, this is where you place your heart. And he tells them what to do. So it reminds me of a saying I ran across a couple months ago. If, you, if at first you don't succeed, try doing it the way I told you. Parents, you're welcome to that one, okay? You see, this all started with Adam and Eve. They had a very simple choice. Obey God and do it his way. Disobey God and do it their way. They knew the consequences and they chose to disobey God and go their own way anyhow. Well, we have the same situation here. The Israelites chose to disobey God and were suffering the consequences. Now, God basically said, that didn't succeed. Now do it the way I told you. And then to make sure that they get the message, to press the point home, God is going to tell the Israelites that their lack of success, success was his doing, just as, he had, just as he had warned in Leviticus. It gets dry up here. So picking it up in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now, that's the thing. When the Israelites are going about their daily business, they must have been able to see this unfinished temple. They couldn't miss it because the altar was up there. There were sacrifices going on up there. And again, it was the reason that they were there, was to rebuild that temple. But rather than obey God and to do what he'd called them to do, they decided to go their own way. As if to say, right now, it's more important. We build our own homes and businesses. You know, we'll get to the temple soon enough. So God, he kept his word. And he uses considerable power and resources to get the Israelites' attention, showing them that taking their focus away from the task they were called to do would have negative consequences. 
And when that failed, he assigned Haggai the task of speaking to the people. And he might be called the last level of warning before, before things are really bad. But in calling Haggai, I also see an example of God's grace. Because if we were to read that list that God told them in Leviticus chapter 26, it's clear he could have made it much worse for the Israelites. But he didn't. He sent Haggai. And as the case for biblical prophets, it seems, Haggai was given the unpleasant task of telling a stiff-necked and disobedient people that they were being stiff-necked and disobedient. Now, I don't know what would have happened if the people had ignored that last warning. Happily, they heeded it and, avoid cra and avoided crashing into the swamp. We pick it up in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So we see those two words that indicate that the Israelites are now starting to get the message, that they're recognizing their need for repentance and to change their ways. When we read, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the people feared the Lord. And in so doing, they hearken to the words that Solomon wrote in that fascinating book, Ecclesiastes, when he comes to the end in his conclusion. And Solomon writes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But the Israelites were almost there, but they needed just a touch more, just, a, just another little nudge, Okay? In verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now notice it says here that the Lord steered up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. Now that word could also be translated as awakened or aroused. Uh, and when I read that, it reminded me of a time when I was in the Marines. I was a crew chief on a CH-46 cargo helicopter. And our mission one day was paradrops. A bunch of Marines, you know, jumping off the end of the ramp with their parachutes. And the jump master was a seasoned old gunnery sergeant. He's standing there next to the end of the ramp, and he's guiding them, and they're supposed to just go right to the edge of the ramp, and off they go. So these Marines are going, and one young Marine gets to the edge of the ramp, and he hesitates for just a moment. And that old gunny didn't miss a beat, reached up with his boot, and nudged that Marine on his way. In a similar fashion, I think God nudged the Israelites. The people got the message, the Israelites had regained their focus and returned to building God's house. But there was one more issue for God to deal with. Sometimes our children don't always do what we tell them, do they? So what do we do? 
We chew them out a little bit, maybe apply a little discipline, and tell them in no uncertain terms, now go do what I told you to do. Often, however, our job's not done yet. Let's think about it. After we chastise our child, how often do they say, thank you, mother and father. I realize I needed your firm correction. I am happy to do the task you assigned. I'm gathering not very often. No, what do we get? We get the long face. We get the, and off they go. Some, you know, mumbling like, you don't like me anymore. I can't wait till I grow up and have children. I'll never treat them that way. So what do we do? We let them stew for a little bit. Then we go tell them that they are our precious children and that we love them very much, always have, always will. So about a month after the Israelites have started to rebuild the temple, the Lord again is going to speak through Haggai. However, this time, instead of his sergeant voice, God will speak through Haggai as a loving father. So we pick up the story in chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, those seem like strange questions at first, but if we go back to Ezra, he's going to give us a context for these questions. We look at chapter 3, verses, um, verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the, saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So you see, some of the Israelites had survived the entire exile, and they recalled the beauty and majesty of Solomon's temple. The stunningly beautiful temple that had been destroyed basically because of the Israelites' disobedience. And the temple they're rebuilding was far inferior. Uh, it'd sort of be like replacing the Taj Mahal with a rustic log cabin. So this is going to be a bitter disappointment to those who knew what the original temple looked like. So we add this to the fact that they've just been chastised and disciplined by God. And you can figure they're working on it, but morale is bound to be suffering. And so God, recognizing their pain and suffering, and sadness rather, offered some encouragement. So we pick up in verse 4. Yet now be strong, as Rabbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now recall in chapter 1, God rebuked the Israelites until they continued rebuilding the temple. But now God encouraged them to be strong. Now to be certain, this temple is not going to compare to the one that was there. But that's not important. The thing is, they're rebuilding it. They're obeying God. And I think words that probably lifted sad hearts and dried tears, he reminded the Israelites that he was with them, always had been. That God had made a covenant with them when he brought them out of Egypt 
And God is true to his word. That he loved them, always had, always will. Then he went on to say, my spirit remains in your midst. Now the Hebrew word for spirit is also breath or wind. And so I have this, this picture in my mind that when Haggai is telling us to the people, there's probably a gentle desert breeze blowing. And as that breeze moved amongst the people, it was this tangible illustration of God's presence. And lastly, he says, fear not. Which I find, we see this occasionally in the Bible. Fear God, and God says, fear not. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here he says, fear not. And when I, when I look at this, I'm reminded of what Jesus, uh, something he said that Luke recorded in his gospel in chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. And he starts with this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a pretty terrifying statement if we let it stand alone. But if we read what Jesus immediately followed it with and put it all together, then Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. So when I look at this passage as a whole, I first recognize that on my own merits, I cannot stand before God. And if I'm true to myself, I'm not honest with myself, I deserve the casting into hell. But then I read that God values me, that he values us. Not because we deserve it, but because God is loving and merciful. And he values us enough that he sent his son, his own son, to pay the price. The picture of which we had at communion uh, just a little while ago. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can, those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can stand before God and fear not. Well, then to further reassure and comfort his people, God gave them a glimpse of the future. As we go uh, six through nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's as if God is saying, okay, you've regained your focus on my house, you're rebuilding it, now let me give you a look at what's coming so you can look to the future as well. And as we see in a lot of prophecies, 
there is a blending of the first and second coming of Christ. So, for example, the shaking of the heavens, the earth, sea, and dry land might point the Israelites to Isaiah where he wrote, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. For us, it might point to the stuff of Revelation. When Jesus will return, and as John wrote, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. God also reminds the Israelites that the temple they're rebuilding may not be adorned with a lot of gold and silver. Not to worry, that all belongs to God anyhow. Besides, the temple that is coming will be so glorious as to make Solomon's temple look like a log cabin in comparison. As a matter of fact, when we, when we read when we read John's description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, we learn this about that. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Then God promises that to this temple he will bring peace. And we know that there came a time when the Prince of Peace walked on the place where the Israelites were rebuilding the temple. That their hope in a Redeemer and Messiah would be fulfilled on that very ground. Okay, so let's see if we can put this all together and bring it home to us. All right, first focus lost. It can really be easy, easy for us to lose our focus on the task at hand. Things that happen just can get our attention. For example, we're driving along, and our phone chimes, indicating we have a new text message. Huh, is that important? Who's it from? Huh. What does it say? Before you even consider pulling over to pick up your phone, you're already more distracted than you realize. It happens that quick. And it can be that way with anything that God calls us to do in life. For example, I believe that as parents, we're called to be godly parents and raise godly children. Sure sounds easy when I say it that way, doesn't it? But as most of us in this room know, that's not easy. It's a complicated task, and there's a world full of distractions out there to pull us away. I mean, think about it. We start out fine. We take them to church. We study Bible with them. We pray with them. We pray for them. But there's also school. And then we have to house and clothe and feed them. And then comes band or sports practice or school plays. I mean, I could go on, but you get the picture. Before we know it, we've lost our focus on our primary responsibilities as a parent. And so what happens? We get distracted. We respond to that distraction. And before we know it, we're off on the wrong path. So focus regained. Now, it's easy to lose your focus. This is a little harder. Because you first have to recognize, or we have to first recognize, we've lost our focus in the first place. Clearly, the crew on Eastern 401 never recognized that they had lost their focus on their primary responsibility. But we have help. 
As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a built-in, indwelling warning and alert system. God's Holy Spirit. As Jesus promised us in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So just as God sent Haggai to the Israelites to refocus their attention on rebuilding the temple, God sends us his Holy Spirit to guide, to teach, to help us, to keep us focused. And when we lose our focus, to warn us before we crash into the swamp. Lastly, focus on the future. Now, I know I started off with a pretty tragic story, but we're going to finish with some really good stuff here. What's, what the future is going to bring for us. So, when I would be flying, I worked hard to keep my focus on the task at hand. Fly the aircraft, navigate, talk to air traffic control, and to be alert for the warning signs of things not going right. But I also had my eye on my destination, the place where I would eventually arrive. And as the adopted son of a loving God, I also try to keep my focus on the task he has assigned, to pray, to study his word, my case to teach, and to be alert to the guidance and warning of his indwelling Holy Spirit. But I also think this is not just me, I think it's important for all of us is to also keep an eye on our ultimate destination. Ralph Waldo Emerson is quoted as saying, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Well, I'm going to disagree with that. Because as Christians, I think it's about the journey that God has us on here in this life. And I think it's also about the destination to which he'll call each of us one day. And that place is going to be glorious. It's going to be marvelous. It's, how much time do I have? I could go on. But when I want to hint, I go to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, as the, as the adopted sons and daughters of our loving God, this is our destination. Where God dwells, we will dwell with him. And as we go through life, doing our best to follow God's will, doing those things we need to do to get by, sometimes getting lost in the details and losing our focus, sometimes regaining our focus, it's important to remind ourselves to also focus to the future. 
to remember that in this place we are, as Peter calls us, aliens and sojourners. This is not our home. But to remember that our final destination will be to dwell with God. And then we will be home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us today to look at this word. Father, I pray that you've imprinted in our hearts the message you'd have for each of us, Father, uh, that as we leave this place, Lord, we're just a little bit better prepared for the task and the call you have on each of our lives. So I pray in Jesus' name.